Okay. My journey here is getting shorter. How about yours? Is it getting longer? Thanks to you, my journey is getting shorter. Shorter than it was. How about your journey? Are you now taking the longer route? Are you taking the scenic route? Those days I had to walk all the way past you. Now you're walking past me. The point is to make it shorter, not longer. That's a riddle. Nice to start the day on a riddle, isn't it? It sets us for the rest of the day. <laughs> if the start is like this, you can imagine what the end is going to be like. Hopeless. <laughs> All right. No matter what you do, just make sure you don't put a banyan tree behind me, okay? Decoration thing, whoever. Then I'll have to hear, listen to all sorts of stories. So, no banyan trees, please. <laughs> put a mango tree, I don't mind. Or even a coconut tree. With ripe coconuts in case one might fall on my head, that's fine. Just don't put a, <laughs> just don't put a banyan tree. <laughs> that will be the last sermon I get to do. Okay. Right, then, before we begin, let us take a moment to pay homage to he who is the magnificent one, the unvanquished, the undefeated, the unparalleled one, who is the greatest teacher in 10,000 world systems. Our father on the path to Nibbana, our guide, our teacher. He who is the most merciful one, the infinitely compassionate one, who is the fount of loving kindness and whose wisdom knows no bounds. And let us do so, as we do so, let us also remind ourselves that as his students, as we like to call ourselves and wish to call ourselves his children, let us make this an opportunity to remind ourselves why we are here, to renew our pledge, our oath of allegiance to the noble Triple Gem, and in doing so, to our salvation, our freedom, our liberation. So as we bring our palms together in veneration of the most noble one, the perfect one, the supremely enlightened one, let us also make a promise that this is a journey to our end, the journey to the ultimate bliss of Nibbana. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa 
नमो तस्गवतो अर्हतो Question had come through, and I thought that might be a good place to start. So it goes something like this: I know that things are based on causes. I know that the flower is going to wither away. I know it sounds almost poetic, doesn't it? I know my parents, spouse, and children are going to pass away. It rhymes. I don't see them as fixed entities. What am I missing here? Very good question. <clears throat> the answer to this question is what is. going to help you transcend from two dimensional thinking to the dimensionless thinking you can call it three dimensional if you want but i see it as thinking that is dimensionless because when we talk about entities there are always dimensions see often i mean you could be forgiven for thinking that buddhism is about freeing your mind from attachment to various things right most people believe that as they listen to the dhamma and follow the path at some point you're going to free your mind from attachment to things such as maybe you know some of these things your spouse children parents so people wait for that day where they feel that their mind is free of attachment to their parents as an example or free of attachment to their children because they believe when that happens they will be able to be free of suffering they won't have to be in fear or what might happen to my loved ones what might happen to my children what might happen to my parents my spouse they're getting older they're getting weaker they're ill what might happen next attachment I want to help you redefine attachment. Attachment in Buddhist philosophy, at least the aspects we talk about here, attachment is not attachment to your mother. Attachment is there is a mother. That is the attachment I'm talking about. so listening to the dhamma following this path the noble eightfold path if i if i can take you on that journey when you arrive at your destination you will not be someone who is free of attachment to your mother you will be someone who sees no mother to attach to you will be someone who sees no flower to wither away you'll be someone who sees no spouse i don't mean physically they're all there but in a dimensionless world they're not there see how how tall is your mother 
you have an answer to that question because she has she she is confined by the dimensions of physics she is this tall how heavy is she you can say she is this heavy how wide is she you can say she is this wide so you can talk about dimensions in fact she is an entity isn't she now i looked up the, i took up the dictionary and looked up the word entity whether that actually conveys what i want to say and it says an entity is something that exists so that's decent enough close enough fair enough provided you understand what i what i'm trying to get across to you here because there's no no dictionary in this world that i can that i can actually use to find the words to get the point across to you language this this understanding has to transcend language i cannot contain it within the words of a language and say you know look up these words in the dictionary and you will get what i mean it doesn't work like that we use language to express an idea but the idea is not contained within those words it's almost like using a ladder to get up to a height you use the ladder to ascend and get up to a height but when you're there there is no more ladder in fact the ladder does not have the height or where you are when you ultimately get there but you excuse me you use the ladder to climb up and take yourself above where you are to where you want to be so the ladder is not the destination it's just the journey in much the same way what we use as language be that english or singhalese or hindi or spanish or tamil or german whatever it is the buddha's language is a very different one now i'm not talking about magadhi not talking about the pali i'm talking about the idea that he wanted to convey there is no language that can convey that because we use language to talk about entities i can use a language to say that this is a fan so language has been invented to talk about entities you'd use language to say she is my mother this is my father so what do you think came first language or the entities of course the entities came first and then you need you needed words to label them to identify them sanya and then language came later people saw something man saw something and asked what is that there had to be an answer to that question so the what came first the answer came next so for the what to have come first they should have seen something and that something is the entity so the attachment that i'm trying to explain to you here and to free you from they say you know tanha jayati soko tanha jayati bhang you've heard all of these things right through the eradication of attachment you are freed from fear through the eradication of attachment you are freed from grief it would be as i said I, you know you could be forgiven for thinking well true so i mean also because through the eradication of attachment to my children i will be free from the fear of what might happen to them as i see my young child run across the street my heart begins to pound faster and i'm i dread in fear i see the vehicle approaching 
and my knees almost go lifeless. That is fear. How do I free myself from that? You think attachment, freeing yourself from attachment will do that for you. Yes and no at the same time. If you think freedom from attachment, eradication from attachment is simply going to make you feel that your child is there but you are no longer attached to it, that is not what attachment does. What attachment will do is it will make you realize that there was no child there in the first place. That is not to say that nothing exists. You know, we're not talking about, say, nihilism, where in, in that concept, in that um, philosophy or in that view of the world, nothing exists. We're not talking about a world where nothing exists. What we're talking about is a world in which all that exists are manifestations. Meaning, nothing is a fixed entity. So, when the question is asked, I know that things are based on causes, I have a question back to the person who asks the question, what things are you talking about? When you say, I know that things are based on causes, what do you mean by things, is what I have to ask in return. Because everyone understands that things are made of causes, you just need to learn a bit of science for that, right? If you go to school, at least every other day, soon enough you'll work out that things are based on causes. You know, when we learn the rain cycle or the water cycle, we learn that you know it's not the gods that rain, it's the sun that makes rain happen. It absorbs the water and then condensifies it in, as clouds and after a while it, the, the heavens open and we have water. But until people learned and realized that, people thought it was the gods doing it. So science has helped us work out that things are based on causes. But the problem is, science has helped us work out that it, are, it is things that are based on causes. Science does not allow us to go beyond that. So, you know, take for example, matter, right? Matter is divisible. So you take matter and you can, you can, you can, uh, you can break it down into its elements. And then you can continue to break it down into its atoms. And then you can continue to break it down. You can keep on going until it's protons and electrons and neutrons. And you can continue doing this. In fact, you can keep on doing this until, until when? There is no until. Everything is divisible. Because when they first found, discovered the atom, they said this is the indivisible particle. Right? It didn't take very long for them to realize that actually, oh, Oops, we got it wrong. This is not the indivisible particle. We can keep going. Because science is a convention. There is scientific thinking behind how you come up with the concept and, and, and uh, come to a conclusion. That is, that is true. I'm not, I'm not saying that scientific thinking is flawed. Scientific thought is not flawed. The scientific method is not flawed. What I'm saying is science deals with existing entities. That is where the problem is. Because if we stop there, then Buddhism equals science. Buddhism is the same as physics. It's the same as chemistry. So then what did, what did the all-knowing one discover? What did he realize? What did the Buddha introduce to this world that Einstein didn't? What did the Buddha give this world that Sir Isaac Newton didn't? What did the Buddha give this world that Rutherford didn't? 
you, you, you end up with these questions. So is he uh, just another scientist? Only he wore a robe. <laughs> he didn't work in a laboratory. He sat under a tree. So what is the difference? All the scientists that have come and gone all talked about entities and what happened to them. Even if they spoke of energy, energy is still an entity. You can quantify energy. You call them quarks. There's a, there are quantities of energy. What we are talking about here is manifestations are not fixed entities. They appear to be entities. But the trained mind that sees through insight recognizes them not as entities, but as pure manifestations. You remember from last week I drew on the board a man and a woman, a human body, the head, the arms, the body, the legs and so on. Where do they become, when, at, you know, at which point does it become a man? At which point does the statue become the Buddha? This was just a rock. And then someone started carving it. With a hammer and a chisel, they just chiseled away. And at some one point you began to say, ah, you're carving a Buddha statue. There's a point at which your mind recognizes it as a Buddha statue. But that has made this no less a rock. It's just a rock. If you disintegrated this into its very particles, right, just, let's just say small particles, and you ask or check each of those particles of whether it has any knowledge that it is part of a statue, it's gonna, they're going to say, what's a Buddha statue? If, if that statue could speak, right? Just imagine that if the statue could speak and you ask the statue, are you a Buddha statue? What do you think the statue is going to say? <laughs> What's a Buddha statue? <clears throat> so when the statue itself does not know what it is, how can you go and give it labels? Who's given us the, 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 the authority to do that? See, uh, I speak... I speak two languages, and I don't mean Sinhalese and English. What I mean is, in this talk, you will find me stepping into, into the two-dimensional world, or the dimensional world, and the dimensionless world, from time to time. You need to be mindful as to when I do that. <clears throat> so when I say, there's a statue here, now I speak in a dimensional world. When I say there is no statue here, now I speak in a dimensionless world. What I meant to say is that it's not that I've just gone blind and I don't see anything. In, in fact, I don't expect to put my arm through and you know, there for, for there not to be an obstacle. I put my arm and I know there's going to be an obstacle before and after. What I'm saying is what the mind perceives as a Buddha statue does not exist. Because in your mind, when you see something, you accept it, you perceive it. Perceive is the best word for this. You perceive this. You perceive those things as fixed entities. And when you talk about fixed entities, now there are things that happen to fixed entities. 
These are the things that you know happen after jati. We talk about the eleven great fires. Death. See, death happens to these people, doesn't it? Parents. What happens to parents? They die. Spouse. What happens to your spouse? Dies. Children die. See, they die. The flower, it withers away and it dies. Yes and no at the same time. When you don't understand what is meant in this dimensionless sense, people begin to think that the reason that death is a problem is because we are born. So they believe that Buddhism is to stop rebirth. Buddhism is not to stop rebirth. Is that another book I shouldn't have opened? No, but you're regular, so I think I, I, I'm at liberty to just speak my mind out when I'm here. Hmm? Otherwise, come on Sunday morning. And we'll make it light touch. <clears throat> this is where I come to explore the Dhamma. And you can come along on that journey. Because you bring merits here. I also bring merits here. And so when these two things collide, magic happens. You know what happens when there's nuclear fusion, right? Serious amounts of energy is released into the universe. What were you talking about? Just before I said that? Death, yes. Thank you. There is death and there is no death at the same time. Now, they talk about Buddhism is about rebirth. So people believe that, you know, see what's happened to us. We are born again. We are not born again. We are born. Right? We are born. I was born to my mother. Right? And so many years ago, I was born. Okay? And I know that I will age. And at some point, I will die. Now then, the question is, when someone dies, will they be reborn? So now people you know, get into two, two or three camps and they say, some say, yes, you will be reborn. Others say you will not be reborn. Others say we don't know. It's hard to say. Depends on something else. Maybe it's as God wishes. Whether you as a Buddhist believe that you're going to be reborn or not, now, actually, answer this for me. What does a good, good Buddhist believe? That when you die, you reborn? If you are a good Buddhist, what must, if someone asks you, in Buddhism, what do they say? When you die, are you reborn? As a good Buddhist, what must you say? You can't lie either, okay? When you die, what happens? You are reborn, right? Yeah. <laughs> If you say you're reborn, that is probably one of the biggest insults you can make to the Buddha. But then you say, hang on a second. Wasn't the Buddha's purpose <coughs> in preaching the Dhamma, excuse me, in preaching the Dhamma to stop rebirth? Problem is, he spoke of jati 
and we use the word birth. In translation, not just in English, even in Sinhala. Even in Sinhala, this problem exists. So perhaps there are those of you in the audience to whom you might think, well, you know, if we were born in this country and we learned the language from the start, then we, this problem wouldn't have happened to us. Not so. Misinterpretations. Jati is what the Buddha used as a term to describe what he wanted to describe. Again, he had to use language. So in Sinhalese, Jati is what people thought was birth, as in what happened to you so many years ago. That is not what Buddhist philosophy is to deal with. That is just an afterfact. In fact, that is, that is, a, that is a side effect. It is just a bonus. It is just an extra that you are not going to be reborn. That's not the purpose of Buddhism. It's not to stop rebirth. It is, stopped, it is to stop jati. Jati is not rebirth. But people will speak of the dependent origination process. And as you see, ignorance leads to attachment, leads to clinging, it leads to bhava, and then it leads to jati. If you want to stop being reborn, you have to stop ignorance. True. But not exactly. Rebirth is not what we're here to stop. What we're here to stop is, let's put it this way, we're here to stop birth, okay, if that's the word you want to use, we're here to stop birth, but the birth of what? It's not your birth we're talking about. It's the birth of a fixed entity. That is what we're talking about. If you want to use the word birth for jati, then so have it, but it is not the birth of a person, it is not the birth of a man or a woman or a child, it's the birth of a fixed entity. It's the birth of an entity, in other words. Because in your mind, you give birth to entities, entities that don't really exist outside. This giving birth process happens in the mind. Because of ignorance, the mind perceives manifestations as entities. That is the giving birth that we are talking about here. So you could say giving birth, but you know, if you looked up in the dictionary, giving birth is not something you can do alone. You have to go, you have to, go to the maternity ward for that, to give birth. Not here. Here we are talking about giving birth, giving birth to entities that appear to be fixed. That only happens in the mind. So I was talking about death. Now, see, when we, when we deal with parents and spouse and children and, you know, Relations now, you know, even at the end of a merit, uh, at the end of the sermon, we do a merit transfer, right? So in the merit transfer, we say, let us now take a moment to transfer these merits to our mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, and so on. So you're very right to ask the question. Well, Swami answer in the sermon that you did just a moment ago, just before the merit transfer, you explained to us that there are no such entities, and now you're transferring merits to them. Here's the deal. Merits work in the dimension world. In the two-dimension world. That is why an arahant is referred to as a punya papa pahinasa. An arahant is someone who is free from the concept of merit and demerit. Because an arahant 
in, in the Arahant's world, where there is no world, there is no giving and getting back. There is no given you shall receive in an Arahant's world. Because there is no, there is no source of karma. You know, merit transfer, you, you transfer merits, right? So to transfer merits, you've got to be earning merits. But and does an Arahant not do a merit transfer at the end of the sermon? What do you think? Of course he does. Because the truth is actually, you know, although we call it a merit transfer, it's not really a merit transfer. I don't know where this talk is going. <laughs> we better rein it in. <laughs> it's like a rain running off the rails, or a train running off the rails. In an Arahant's world, there is no... An Arahant does a merit transfer, but it's not a transfer of merits. See, when we do the merit transfer, right, let me just clear that out before we continue, otherwise you're all going to be so confused. <clears throat> when we do a merit transfer, although we call it a merit transfer, what we're really doing is, here are some good deeds that have happened. <clears throat> Why don't you rejoice in them? I can't transfer any of my merits to you, and you can't transfer any of your merits to me. It's not like a money transfer. You can't do like that. It's not like you have some money and you transfer it to me and you and now you have less and I have more. If it was actually a transfer of that sort, then you should have less at the end of that, shouldn't you? I mean, that's a, such a foul deal. Why would you transfer it then? And if so, you know, we transfer it to all beings in all worlds. So then no one else should, be, should need to bother doing merits. You can just sit at home, do nothing, just sit on your backside and just eat, drink, sleep, do whatever. But I will do all the merits on your behalf and I'll just come there at the end of the day and do a transfer you. And I, I, you know, I touch your head or something and hold on a second while I download all the merits to you. This merit power, by the, by the, by the power of these merits, may you be <laughs> free from suffering. So I download and you upload. So what? I upload and you download. It doesn't work like that. Although we call it a merit transfer, it's not really a transfer. It is actually a rejoicing in merits. To the degree to which you can rejoice in a good deed, that is, to, that is the amount by which, or the degree to which you earn merits. So in fact, when we do a meritorious deed and we speak of it, anyone who rejoices in it generate new merit. That's the way it works. It's like an investment. You generate new money. You generate new merit. So for, say, for instance, I come here and tell you that earlier on today, I, I, I gave a meal to a poor person. right? And then all of you now listen to it. You were, none of you were there when, uh, or to witness what I did. But now you all heard me say that. And you all say, wow, what a lovely thing to do that was, you say. At that moment, you generate merit. So this is new merit. So there was one meritorious deed that I had done for which there was meritorious power generated and now there's what? However many people in the room you are today, in each of your minds, because it's a source for karma, because karma happens in your mind, in fact, because jati happens in your mind, because you also see that the, in, the, in this world there are things called beggars, there are people called beggars or poor people. You have to be a non-arahant for you to rejoice in that and earn merit. If you were an arahant, you could still say, what a nice deed, well done. 
But that doesn't, that doesn't acquire any merit. Merit is simply the generation of karmic energy. It creates energy for you to have another day. Another day to happen, another day to, for, 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 for life to continue. You know, this is, this is repumping energy. This is recycling energy, if you like. The best analogy I can think of it is that. This is recycling energy for continued existence. So when we do a merit transfer, it's not my merit I transfer to you and it's not your merit you transfer to me. So when we transfer our merits to our, you know, our dead parents, those who've passed away, predeceased, we can't actually give them all the merits that we have acquired and then you know, we have no merits left. That's not how it works. All we say is we've done something of this sort and if they can hear us from wherever they are, if they also in their mind rejoice, now they have also earned merits. So coming back to the point I was talking about earlier, an arahant is not someone who engages in, who merit doesn't happen in their mind. They do the deed, but the karma doesn't happen. Why does an arahant, why is it in an arahant's mind the karma doesn't happen? That is what we need to try and find an answer to. Why in an arahant's mind does, say an arahant goes on arms, he, he gets his meal, and then when he walks to the temple, he sees the poor person, right? He takes part of his meal and he offers it to the poor person. This is an arahant, by the way. Is that not a good deed? If we saw that, would we not rejoice in it? We would. And in rejoicing in it, we earn merit, but the arahant doesn't. How's that so when he was the one who did it? Because he sees the world in a different way to, we, to us. We see a, a world, a dimensional world. He sees a dimensionless world. In his world, there has just been movement of matter. In our world, there's been I who's given a meal to a poor person. That is karmic energy. You know, at the end of this conversation, I can convince you that there is no such thing as good and bad things. But if we are not careful, then that in itself can ruin someone entirely because then they might think, well, okay, so killing cannot be bad then. And engaging in meritorious deeds, you know, giving to others who don't have, you know, giving to the needy, that can't be good then. So this can be toxic if the mind does not understand the, the Dhamma. So we are trying to transcend from this dimensional world to a dimensionless world. In that world, there are no parents, there are no spouses, there are no children. Therefore, there is no death. That is why there is the deathless realm. You've heard this, right? Nibbana is the deathless realm. Now, when you say Nibbana is the deathless realm, um, if you've heard that before, when you say Nibbana is a deathless realm, in your mind, it might, you might perceive it and interpret it in this, in this way. You might think, right, so when we die, if we have become Arahants, we go, we go into Nibbana. And in Nibbana, we don't die. Once you're in Nibbana, you don't die. Yes and no at the same time. Yes, that is true, because you don't die because you're not born again, you know, as you have 
in this world, in this existence, you know, sir, you're a man, madam, you're a woman, right? We, we've been born into this world. If this doesn't happen, we don't die, yes. But when the Buddha says that Nibbana is the deathless realm, he's not necessarily talking about that. What he's talking about is, once you understand the Dhamma, let's say you're mortal, I beg your pardon, let's say you're immortal, immortal in the sense, your heart is forever going to beat, and your body is forever going to sustain the mind, right? And you can just live as you, as you do now. Let's just imagine that this was an immortal world. Once you attain arahanthood, you have entered the deathless realm. But you have to have attained arahanthood to enter the deathless realm. You will still be immortal in the conventional sense, but you have also now become immortal in the sense of the Dhamma because now in your world you don't see entities to die. You don't see a mother to die. You don't perceive a spouse to die. Do you remember that we spoke about the teacup last time? How you make a cup of tea and how a tea evolves into or a, or a, cu- a cup of hot water evolves into uh, a cup of milk tea. Remember we talked about this? Just the fact that we perceive it in those terms is evidence that we see entities in this world, evolving entities, transforming entities. You must have watched the film The Transformers. Yeah, so there's a, there's a, there's a robot that transforms into a car that transforms into a truck, that transforms into some other you know, gadget. So when you watch that, you're talking about things that transform and become something else. One thing becomes something else, right? That is exactly what doesn't happen. Things don't transform. One thing doesn't transform to another. A cup of tea was not a cup of plain tea earlier. It was not a cup of hot water earlier. In every moment, new causes come together and then a new effect manifests. It's always new causes, new effect. Even if it seems like a number, uh, you know, a new cause has been added to an existing manifestation and now you have a new one. It was not X into Y and that's given you Z. It's not one is added to something else that, bre- that transforms it into something else. Let me try and break it down for you with a few more examples. Um, okay. So... <clears throat> Say, um, okay, let's say you've got some color, color pencils. Now we know how colors combine to make new colors, right? Let's say we've got our color paint, right? Easier to think of it. If you have uh, yellow paint and you have blue paint, what do you get? Hmm? Purple. Purple? Is it purple? Green, yes, thank you, green. So if you have yellow paint and if you have blue paint, when you mix the two, you get green paint. 
when yellow paint and blue paint mix to make green paint, where's the yellow paint? Where did that go? Because it's no longer yellow, is it? It's blue. Sorry, I beg your pardon. It's green. So where did the yellow go? Did you see yellowness run away? And did you see green run in? Where did the blue go? Did you see blue run away, fly away? And where did the green come from? That's not how it works. So then did, it, did, did blue make yellow green? I'll write it up on the board just so it's not confusing. We have yellow. And you add blue. And you tell me we get green. OK? Now, if I asked you, how do you make the color green? You might tell me, add the blue to the yellow, and you get green. So what does blue do then? It makes yellow green, right? Or you might say, no, no, it's, that's not how it works. So I'm going to answer, yellow makes blue green. Is it yellow that makes blue green? Or is it blue that makes yellow green? Which one makes the other something else? So did you see blue kicking yellow out? And then, you know, if that were the case, here's what should happen. Here's yellow. So this is yellow. This is the blue. When you added the blue to the yellow, you should see the blue come and kick the yellow out and just leave just colorless paint. It's just colorless paint, colorless paint. And oh, by the way, the blue should get kicked out as well, because now it's time to it's time for green to come in. So you should see the blue run away. You should see the yellow get out of it. You should see the blue come out of it. And from somewhere, green has to come in. And out of thin air, green has to just just come out of thin air. It almost seems magical, doesn't it? Now, when you first saw colors combine to make new colors, was that not a, you know, a, a, a wow moment? If you can think back to your childhood, when you saw colors being mixed and new colors were, were formed as a result, was that not a oh, wow moment? <laughs> it certainly was in my life. Because I couldn't work out how, how was that even possible? Because there's, there's yellow and there's blue. There was no green. Where did the green come from? So then what we convinced ourselves was blue and yellow, when they combine, there's, so if there was one liter of this and one liter of this, now of course you have two liters of green. So when this one and this one combine, the both of them turn green. So was it yellow that turned green or was it blue that turned green? Which one? Did they both turn green at the same time? Just think about it. So where did the green come from then? <laughs> exactly. It's a very different manifestation. This is just the same like the teacup example. Yellow and blue didn't make green. 
In fact, you know that you know, color is not a characteristic of an object. An object has pigments, right? So all objects have are pigments. They don't have, so this, these leaves are green because there's a pigment called uh, chlorophyll. So when light shines on this, it is light that you know, has any, 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 any resemblance to color. So there is no light in this. So how can this be green at all? If it's light that is green, where is light in this? There's no light. So, but when you look at it, you feel that this is green, right? It's not green. It's just got a pigment. And that pigment is not even green. <laughs> when this light touches your eye, it is converted to an electrical impulse. What color is electric? It has no color either. But when that signal reaches your brain, and then it does this magic with your mind, it interprets that wavelength as green. You, there is no color in this world, ladies and gentlemen. You read, there is no color. This world is colorless. That doesn't mean the world is black and white, because that is yet again another color. The world is not color, is not of color. The world is colorless, not black and white. But there are pigments. What pigments do is when light energy falls on it, it absorbs some of those frequencies and other frequencies it, it emits. It reflects. And that, those frequencies are energies that are received by the retina. And those energies are then converted to an electrical signal. You know, most, most of you know all this stuff. This is just basic science, right? And then as it reaches the brain, it interacts with the mind, and then that energy is perceived as green or as color. So then color does not exist in the world. But when you look at this leaf, don't you feel that green is, a, is, is an attribute of this? That it's characteristic of this? You can't help thinking that. You almost feel like green is part of it. You'd say as green as a leaf, won't you? So what's, what can be more green than a leaf? Because a leaf, a leaf is green. You feel, we feel that way. But that is so not true. So where did this green come from then? Was it in the yellow? So did yellow hide all the green until blue came along? It had it, just had it hidden in, in its pockets. It didn't show it up until blue came and said, hey, show me what you got. And then he said, here you go, it's green. Is that how it worked? Or did when blue came along, did it bring green with it, but just hid it behind its back? And then yellow said, hands up. And then there was green. You know, none of this, this is just silly. None of this is, was what really happened. When these two things manifested, see, think about this, ladies and gentlemen, because, you know, through this, I'm trying to help you understand that this dimension, this dimensional world in which you live, all the suffering that you create for yourself is unnecessary and you can be free from it. This is a liquid that has a pigment. Let's imagine that pigment is this shape. Okay, just for argument's sake. This is also a liquid in our example of paint that, that has a pigment. And let's say that pigment is of this shape. Okay? Now, when light falls on this, this pigment is going to absorb, in other words, it's going to, let's say it's going to vibrate. 
I'm, I'm, I'm simplifying some, some science concepts here just to help get the point across, okay? Let's say this vibrates because of the, the energy. And as it vibrates, that vibration takes up some of the energy in the light, in this, in this, in this light ray. But there's some of the energy that it, it does not absorb, so that energy it has to, it can reflect. And that energy is reflected. So this is not the same energy that came in because some of that energy was consumed by the vibration. All right? Same thing happens here. So let's say 100 came in. Vibration took up 20. What do we have left? 80. Over on this side, again 100 came in. This also vibrates. This takes up 30. Now what do we have left? We have 70. Now when these two liquids are mixed in the same container, now you have something like this. This is not this and this together. It's something completely new. How so? Now again light falls on this. Yet again it's 100. Now the vibration is 30, uh, 30 here and 20 here. Okay, so a combination of 50. So if 50 is the vibration energy, how much do you have going out? You have 50. So 50 is the energy that is released. Now 50 energy, the energy at a rating of 50 versus here you had 80 versus here you had 70. These three are energies of, of different quantity. So when they reach the eye, it's going to generate a different stimuli, a different impulse, because it's a different quantity of energy. So now, although it seems like this is yellow and blue together, collectively they're doing a, a very different thing to what they did individually. So you no longer have the 70 or the 80. In fact, you only have 50. Because it's doing its part, this is doing its part. Together it's doing a completely different, different job. That's why they say the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. You know, this is how we perceive the world. When two things come together, we see a whole that is greater than just its, its parts together. When you see the Great Wall of China, you see the Great Wall of China. You don't see the bricks that make it up, do you? But what are its parts? Just the bricks. It's just the bricks. But you see something more than the bricks. Do you, just, you go all the way to China just to see some bricks? <laughs> hmm? When you go see the Great Wall, if you've ever been there, is that how you would say it to your friends? You know what, I went to China to see a line of bricks. You don't say that. You say, I went to China to see the Great Wall. But what was really there? Just the bricks. The sum of bricks. But you see a whole that is greater than the sum of the parts. That whole, the mind perceives. It's not actually there. What's actually there is just the bricks. Because that's why I say, you know, ask the statue 
What are you? Are you a Buddhist statue? And the statue is going to say, what's a Buddhist statue? You go to the Great Wall of China and speak to any one of the bricks, if they, if they could speak, and ask them, are you? Are you the Great Wall? They'll ask us, what's the Great Wall? Ask any one of the bricks, and they'll all give you the same answer. What is the Great Wall? From the first brick right to the last brick, they'll tell you, what is the Great Wall? What do you mean, the Great Wall? So now tell me then, does the Great Wall exist? Does it not exist? What exists are bricks together and then a manifestation of a wall. That manifestation was not put there. No one brought the Great Wall from anywhere, but they brought, the, they brought brick by brick. Brick by brick it was laid. No one brought the Great Wall. Like the workers of the time, they didn't bring a wall. They brought one brick at a time. How was this building built? You know, we say, how was this building built? This building was never built. What actually happened? There was this brick and mortar. Like one brick at a time, and then a bit of mortar, and another brick, another bit of mortar, another brick with a bit of mortar. And then, you know, that is all there is. But when we look at this room, we can't help but perceive that this is a room. This is an entity. This is a fixed thing. Now by fixed, I don't mean that this room will never collapse. That's not what I mean. Because, you know, that might be the, the, uh, the underlying argument behind this statement. You know, I know that my parents are going to pass away. I know that they're not fixed. I know that my parents will eventually die. That again is impermanence. That, that is not what we're talking about. We're not talking about the concept of impermanence where things die. Things grow old. Uh, you will die one day. Is that surprise, surprise? Did you learn about it first here? <laughs> that you're going to die one day? Did you have to meet the Buddha for that? What is, so, you know, if the Buddha discovered impermanence, right? The, what, you know, was he dumb before becoming the Buddha? Did he, did he not see that people before him died? Right? You know, Asita, who was the sage who came and spoke to him, or not spoke to him, at least blessed, blessed the child as a young as a young prince, a young baby prince, right? The, the very reason that he, he cried was because he realized I was never going to be able to, I'm never going to be able to see the Buddha and listen to his preaching. So what, the, was the Buddha dumb? You know, did he not get the point that people die? He did. But he saw a death that you don't see unless you look through the wisdom eye. That is the death of fixed entities. Fixed entities die. Death is a concept in the realm of fixed entities. If there is no fixed, fixed entities, if there are no fixed entities, in a dimensionless world, there is no concept of death. That is why Nibbana is deathless. It is not because in Nibbana no physical matter exists. That's not what we are talking about here, folks. I'm talking about the deathlessness of an Arahant. Not when the Arahant dies, he's not born again. That's not what I'm talking about. See, please try and get this into your, into your heads. What I'm not, this is not what I'm, what I'm not saying. Right? This is not what I'm saying. So here's a man, right? he's just a Putakjana. He listens to the Dhamma one day, he becomes a Sotapanna. Then one day he practices, he continues his practice, and one day he becomes an Arahant. Now, the Arahant grows old, 
and eventually the Arahant dies. Okay? Can you see if I drew here? Can you see from the back? So here's another man, his brother, who's his twin, in fact. He is not interested in the Dhamma, so he's still a Prutakjana. He's still not interested in the Dhamma, so he's still a Prutakjana. And now he's old, and he's still a, a Prutakjana. And now he dies. So two people, twins, different story. Tell me, where is the deathless realm? In the conventional sense, in the sense in which this question has been asked, the, the deathless realm is what this guy enters. Nibbana. Nibbana is where the dead Arahant goes. So in that realm, there is no matter, there is no energy, so therefore if there's no matter, there's no energy, then there can't be death. But what I'm trying to say, explain to you is, that is not when he entered the deathless realm. It was at this point. At this point was when this man entered the deathless realm. At this point, where he became a Sotapanna, he realized that deathlessness is achievable. He began to see deathlessness for the first time. He began to see that deathless, deathlessness, or I don't want to call it immortality because it gives a different impression. He realized that deathlessness is not something that comes here. He realized that deathlessness comes at this point. That is his realization of as a Sotapanna. Are you with me? As a Sotapanna, you realize that you become deathless. You enter the deathless realm upon becoming an Arahant. Not when the Arahant dies. Because there's this, there's this, there's this concept out there that there's, there's this thing called Nibbana. That everyone goes. That you, you, you disintegrate. And you just go like an energy, like a, like a spirit or something. And it just goes into Nibbana. And here, you know, there are no people, there are no people like you and I. So, you know, because we, we, don't, we are not there, we don't die. Because we are not born, we don't die. And so, therefore, people get in this, into this closet thinking that birth is what happened when you came into this world. And, this, and, and you died as a Deva, maybe, or you died as a Brahma, or you died as another human being, or maybe an animal, and then you were born again to a human mother. And we have to stop this from happening. And, and, and we have to stop being born again to another mother. That is not the deathlessness I'm talking about here. That is the conventional deathlessness. You can talk about that till the cows come home and not be a Buddhist not have understood Buddhist philosophy. You don't need to understand Buddhist philosophy that, for that because back then, even before the time of the Buddha, they, talk, they talked about this concept. When we die, we are no more. Because there were three schools of thinking, broadly speaking. There was one school that said, we didn't come from anywhere, right? but we are here now, and that's the end of it. There was another school of thinking that said, we came from somewhere, but this is going to be the end of it. There's another school of thinking that said, we didn't come from anywhere, but we shall continue from here on. Actually, there was a fourth one that said, 
We've come from somewhere, we are here now, and we shall continue into the future. The Buddha's teaching was none of it. That's why when he was asked, did we come from somewhere, sir? The answer was, you're asking the wrong question. Are we here now, sir? The answer is again, you're asking the wrong question. Are we going to be going somewhere, sir? Again, the answer is, you're asking the wrong question. So did we not come from somewhere? Again, you're asking the, same, the wrong question. Are we not going anywhere? Wrong question. Are we not here then? Wrong question. So are we neither here nor not here? <laughs> wrong question. It's, a, it's, it's almost like saying, is this pen here or is it not here? Wrong question. Because when you ask me, is this pen here, you're again talking about a pen. When you ask me, is this pen not here? I mean, that's such a silly thing to say. This pen is here and you're telling me it's not here. So is this pen not here? Again, you're asking the wrong question. Because if I said, yes, this pen is not here, you'd ask me, then what the heck is this? If I tell you, no, this pen, if I tell you, yes, this pen is here, then you'll ask me, you might be happy with the answer, but unfortunately, I haven't told you the truth. Because then again, you see a fixed, fixed entity. So then this, pill, this pen will break, this pen will die, this pen will decay. And again, you're in suffering. So the Buddha's purpose of coming into this world is not to, not to, not to help you continue your, your, your wrong way of thinking about this. It's to instill in your mind a new, fresh, the right way of thinking, right perspective. And in that world, the question to be asking is not whether it is here, is it here or is it not here? Yes. How? How do I see? Oh, in fact, you know, it's not like, how do I see this pen? The, the right thing to be asking is, how does, how does it happen? How does seeing happen? How does this happen? This, how does this happen? Because I know I'm holding something in my hand. How does it happen? This is a manifestation. Yellow was not hiding green for blue to come and just kick it out of it. And green, uh, blue wasn't hiding green either. So green was not something that was hidden in yellow and green. And when the two of them came together, it, it, it was born. That's not how it happened. Green was not there when yellow and blue were there. When the two of them came together, something completely different, something completely new happened. That's why it would be wrong to say that I added blue to yellow and got green. Or even to say that I added yellow to blue and got green. That assumes, that implies even, that there was one to which something else was added and then that transformed into something else because that's not what's going on. On this platform, they have equal place. Both yellow and blue, they're, they're equal players on this platform. One is not superior to the other. So when green happens, it's almost like it came out of nowhere. But, you know, the reason that we were vowed as, as young children, when we saw that, you know, we were vowed as young children is because we, we, we had this question in our mind, where did that come from? You had that question in your mind. Because if things are there, it has to come from somewhere, right? Was what we thought, how we felt. If there's something, it has to have come from somewhere. So where did it come from? 
Do you remember the first time a, a fire was lit? You probably don't actually, you know, maybe it was a very long time ago. The first time you saw a fire being lit, you might have asked the question, huh, where did that come from? Why do you ask that question, where did that come from? Did you, at least if you don't remember fire, do you remember your younger brother? When you, first saw, when you saw him for the first time, what did you ask? Where did that come from? Because for something to be there, it has to have come from somewhere. Because it's there. It's a thing. A thing can't just appear. It has to come from somewhere. And if it comes from somewhere, it has to go somewhere. That's why people ask, you know, when my mother is dead, where does she go? I know her body is cremated. Right? It turns into ashes. It becomes part of the earth. Right? It, it just becomes part of the soil. And maybe you know, if we plant a tree there, my mother will always live in that tree. Pe people do that. Yeah, people say, this is, this, my, this, this is where my mother was buried. Right? That's the apple tree where she was buried. Don't touch it. If you ever just even think about touching that tree, let alone cutting it, I, I will behead you. <laughs> because that's my mother's spirit in that tree. I'm not mocking anyone. I'm just saying, you know, we need to help people come out of that thinking. Because now, you know, their, their mother is gone and they don't suffer because someone's going to do anything to their mother. But now they have sort of motherified the tree. And now if someone does something to the tree, I mean, even if lightning were to strike the tree, and now they're going to swear at the gods. Leave my mother alone. Because they feel that it's part of parts of their mother that have gone into making the tree. Well, in which case, you know, we're all cannibals. <laughs> what do we eat? Hmm? Beans and carrots and, and tomatoes and potatoes and onions and all sorts of broccolis, you know. You know, what are we eating after all? You know, dead human beings, aren't we? Then in which case we're all cannibals. Because what happens if you pluck a, um, you know, a, a tomato from a tomato plant that is planted next to a cemetery? What are you eating now? Dead, dead beings, dead humans. So is it, the, is, it, is it that human that you have just consumed? Of course not. Because there was no human there. It was just a manifestation. It would not be wrong for me to simply end that sentence with there is no human there. I have to say something after that. And that is, it is a manifestation. Because if I say there is no human there, then you walk away thinking, oh, so there's no, there are no humans. We can just go stabbing thi at things. And if it dies, it's not a human being that died, so who cares? You can't say that. Because what there is, is a manifestation. It's not that there is nothing. There is something. And that something is a manifestation, not a fixed entity. That is what there isn't. What is there not? Fixed entities. What is there? Manifestations. Is there nothing? Wrong question. Are there fixed things? Again, wrong question. But fixed things, if we perceive fixed things, you perceive death. I don't know if any of you were in the Singhala sermon on last Saturday, were you? Some of you were, right? We talked about departing from our loved ones and why that is painful. Now, there may be some of you here who wish to become Anagarikas or Anagarikas in the future. Hmm? And, and perhaps from time to time you are reminded of your, of your loved ones. Maybe you've come here for a short stay and you're reminded of your, your parents, your friends, uh, your siblings, and your pet cat and your pet fish and whoever. Right? 
and, and, you, and you're thinking of them and you want to go back to them because you, 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 it, it, it hurts to be departed from your loved ones. Piehi vipayogo dukkho. But piehi vipayogo dukkho happens when jati happens. And arahant doesn't, doesn't feel this, this, this pain. Now don't think that's because an arahant has severed attachment to his loved ones. That's not what has happened. An arahant isn't born when the attachment is severed. You know, it's not like this. This is the arahant. This is his mother. An arahant is not someone who used to have an attachment. Okay. Tanha. Attachment to the mother. He, so this is before becoming Arahant, okay, let's say. Uh, and now this is the Arahant. Same mother. This is attachment again. And he didn't become an Arahant by eradicating this. That is the point I'm trying to get across to you. This is not the difference between an arahant and a non-arahant. What you see on the board here is not the difference between an arahant and a non-arahant. Then what's the difference? Here's the difference. That's the difference. No, an arahant doesn't see the mother as just, you know, lots of different parts. I'm not talking about what he physically sees. Physically, there is no difference. But through his mental eye, he realizes that this is just a manifestation. And this combination, this arrangement, this configuration of matter and energy, we call mother. That is what he realizes. When this happens, this can no longer survive. This cannot happen if this doesn't happen. I'll give you a very simple analogy to understand this. You have a friend, you have an enemy. Okay? If you want to pat your friend, you still have to touch him. If you want to hit him, you still have to touch him. You have to come into contact. Where there is no contact, there is no patting and neither there is hitting. So both hitting and patting, they're not two friends, hitting and patting. Neither of these two things can happen if you can't hold them, grab them. Yeah. So if you cannot grab, if you cannot hold, if you cannot cling on to something, you, you can neither pat nor can you hit. To become an arahant is not to do this and still keep the mother. To become an arahant is not to do this, I mean. That's not what becoming an arahant is. Becoming an arahant is this. In fact, it's no longer this.
that's what an arahant is. If this is all there is, then there is no this. There, there is no this. There is no this because all he sees are manifestations. All he sees are manifestations, not entities. See, these are entities. When there's an entity, there is a live mother and there is a dead mother. When there are no entities, there's just a configuration of matter. That configuration, we give it names. But that is in a conventional world, we give it names. Because in a conventional world, we must give things names. Otherwise, we can't, we can't live, we can't interact. So, to an arahant, this is no different to this. So, an arahant knows that this, 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 this tiny part here will one day go into making this. This will eventually land here. But, for someone who is a non-arahant, what they see is, my mother died, and then in its place, we planted a coconut tree. And now when I drink those, the, the, the syrup from the coconuts, right, it's like I feel my mother is with me. Or they'll say, we don't, we don't eat coconut from that tree. Hmm? That would be like me eating my mother. So we don't, we don't, we don't, there are lots of trees at home, coconut trees, right? But from that tree, we don't, we don't take coconuts from that tree. Because that is a very special tree. It's the holy tree. <laughs> it's my maternal tree. But what another hand realizes is, you know, this part that conventionally we call mother is just a configuration. This part was previously a part of What is this? A carrot. So it was this part that has now become this part. So then mother was carrot before it became mother. Again, that's just a conventional way we say we talk about it because it was not carrot before it became mother. Because then again, you'd have to say the mother, the tra carrot transformed into a mother. You know, this is not a carrot. This is just a configuration of matter that we refer to as a carrot. Remember when we wrote the Scrabble letters here? Right, and I put them out on, on, on the board and so on. Right, and we used to make words with them. In fact, the very fact that we can play Scrabble with those letters is because of Anicca. Thanks to Anicca, we can play Scrabble. If the concept of Anicca didn't exist and the world was Nietzsche, Scrabble could not be played. Chess could not be played. In fact, nothing could be played. So you make a word using the letters in Scrabble. You, you make the word, uh, what is this word? Iron. Not that iron, uh, ions, as in plus minus ions. Ions. This is on. It gives, you know, these two words, they have a very specific meaning in your mind, don't they? You interpret this as on, which is the opposite of off, and you interpret this as ions, like what we study in chemistry, ions. So then, this N belongs to on, is how you feel right now. 
this end belongs to iron, right? What if I cut this and paste it here? Now what? Is that on iron? Would you like an on iron? Is this on and iron together? So how do you make an onion? You get an iron and you switch it on. Is that, is that what you do? You know what I'm saying is just silly, right? Because when these two things come together, it's a completely different thing. Now this N and this N, they have equal place. They are equal players. In this word, there is onion. This I, or these two O's, yeah, they have equal place in this onion. Tell me, now, now really think about this, because I'm trying to explain this, and I think somewhere along the line, you're just going to get it. Maybe some of you already have, others will. The penny will drop eventually at some point. I don't know exactly when though, because I'm not the Sarvagnya. <laughs> and I, I don't know at which point it's going to drop for you, but it will. All you've got to do is just pay attention and, and, and try and absorb as much of this as you possibly can, open-mindedly. Right. How did we make this word? Did we add on to iron or did we add iron to on? How do you, how do you make an onion? How do you make the word onion? Do you add on to iron or should you add iron to on? How should you make it? You, if I ask you that question, what do you have to tell me in return? I'm asking the wrong question. Because the reason I'm asking you that question is because in my mind, I'm, I, I've got it all wrong somewhere. I, I'm thinking in my mind, you would have to agree, if I asked you that question, do you add iron to on or on to iron? If I asked you that question, you've got to understand that I've got my thinking all screwed up. You've got to realize that what, in my mind, I think that there's an iron and there's an on that has to be added to it and then that becomes an iron. Meaning an iron was there first and on comes later. And it somehow qualifies the iron to an onion. That is why when I ask you, which one do you add to which to get an onion, you'd have to tell me, you're asking the wrong question, Swaminath. It's not that the on joined the iron and it's not that the iron joined the on because when this happens, ladies and gentlemen, it was not the two of them coming together. It's a very completely new, brand new thing. It's brand new. It was not the combination of iron and on. Is it? You know, when I, when I write this letter, if I, if, you know, when I write this word on the board, imagine I didn't do this previously. Okay? Imagine I didn't write the words iron and on on the board previously. Just, just pretend I didn't do that. If I just wrote the word onion, do you now read it as on iron? Would you have read it like that? No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't see that separation, would you? You'd see it as one whole thing. Yeah? Meaning, it was not iron and on together. Only because I did it this way around, where I wrote iron on the board, on on the board, and then joined the two of them together, now you actually see, ah, okay, this is on and iron. But if I hadn't done that earlier, you would have just seen it as onion. So, this N, to which word does it belong? Which word does N belong to? If you tell me it belongs to onion, I can never have made the word iron from it. 
because it, if it belongs to onion, then it is always, it can only ever be used to make an onion. If this I belongs to the onion, then the, that letter I, that tile in the tile bag and Scrabble can only be used to make the word onion. But you know, that's not how Scrabble works. You put it into a bag, you give it a good shake, and then you take it out and you make whichever word comes to your mind next. The very reason that is possible is because none of these things belong to anything. So in other words, onion doesn't exist. Now let me show you how, how an onion can die. Okay? I'm going to talk to you about death now. Now let first let's, let's, let's decay it before it dies. Decay. Hmm? Old age. That's what happens to those tiles after a while, right? After you, you know, out of wear and tear, they, they start to erase, you know, they, they rub out, and then afterwards, you're left with just the white tile without the, the writing on it, the print on it. So what's going on now? Decaying. Decaying of what? The onion. The onion is decaying. If this were the, the component parts of, of onion, now one of the parts, you know, each of these parts are being decayed. Eventually, it's going to die. See, after a while, the end is just going to disappear. Don't you have, if you have a really old Scrabble board, uh, tiles, I used to have one, I, I was a fan of Scrabble. Some of the tiles that we have, you know, we've been used, we've used it so many times that the actual letter is now, has, now, has now erased. Is no more. So what we do is we, we say, no, this is, this is that tile, okay? <laughs> that, that's why they have the blank tiles. Ah, that's, you know, that's an even better example. Now in the tile bag you have blank tiles, right? Give me a show of hands if you played Scrabble. See if you know what I'm talking about. Ah, so that's unfair for me to use that example. Not everyone knows. So Scrabble is a board game. You, a game when you play when you're really bored. So that board game you have... You have a board like this, on which there are squares, and you are supposed to make words. Words using what? Tiles, which have letters printed on them, and they come in a bag. Uh, you have to pick those tiles, tiles at random, and so there are between two to, <coughs> I think, four players. Yeah? And then each player gets a turn, at which point you make a word using the tiles that you have with you. And if there's a word already on the board, you can just add another letter to the end of it. That's exactly what we're doing here. So player one makes the word iron. What can player two do? If they've got O and N on their board, they add those two letters in front of that word. So when you add that, those two letters in front of that word, what happened to the iron that was there? Did it go away? Where did it go? But you no longer read it as iron, do you? At the end of a, a, a Scrabble game, if you came there and you, and you looked at the board as an observer, you, would, you wouldn't actually see the words that were played originally by the players themselves. Because one player might have played, played iron. The second player, all they had to do was place these two letters in front of iron. So at the end of the game, that's what you're going to see. In fact, the third player might do this.
So at the end of the game, this is what you're going to see. Onions. Then you might ask the question, who played onions? Very smart. Actually, no one played onions. So what really happened? One guy played iron, the other guy played on, and the other guy played s. So onions was never played. The person who made the onions, not the real onions, the person who got the let the word the player that got the word onions, all they had to do was put an s at the end. One letter. One letter and it transformed the whole thing from one onion to a sack of onions. See, what a transformation just by adding one cause. That's why whenever a cause is added, it's no longer the same result as, as was before. The whole thing changes. The whole thing changes. It's a complete remake. It's brand new. Completely brand new. The fact that that is possible is evidence then that what was there before was not an entity. It was just something that was waiting to become something else. It was just a matter of time before it could be, it could ha it could be made into something else. You know, the very fact that I'm saying this became that is also wrong. But unfortunately, I have to use those words because words are there to talk about this is and that's. These things and those things. Because language has been invented to talk about these things and those things. But these things and those things don't exist. They are simply manifestations. If they had a language just to talk about manifestations, we wouldn't be talking about cats and dogs and, and so on. We would be talking about them. We'd be talking about, you know, if the, the word for a manifested dog was a many dog. You know, we'd be seeing many dogs and many cats and many men and many women. <laughs> But we don't talk like that. We just say cats and dogs. But because the mind is always looking to separate things. You know, this is where the, the concept of separation comes in as well. You can now tie the whole thing together. You see, this is what really exists, folks. It's not like when you become an arahant, all of a sudden this becomes this. That's not what happens. In the outside world, okay, when, when, you, when you become an arahant, what changes in the outside world? Absolutely nothing changes. If absolutely nothing changes in the outside world, then what was actually there previously as well? This. It's not like once you become an arahant, this becomes this. Because if that were the case, then when one person becomes an arahant, the whole world becomes an arahant. Then you just need to have one Buddha and everyone else is a Buddha. Because if the whole world changed as soon as his, his realization happened, right? then we all see the world as manifestations. That's not what happens. So this is then evidence that this... This seeing something that is not a manifestation, seeing something beyond a manifestation, overstepping the manifestation, that's, that, that wrong view is something that only happens in the mind. It's nothing to do with the outside world. See how death can happen. Death of whom? The parent, the mother. To talk about death, you have to talk about mother. If you ask an arahant, Sir, how is your mother now? He'll say, my mother died. My mother died two years ago. She was very sick. She was very ill, she was very poorly, and then she died two years ago. But he knows, although the person asking the question might not, 
he knows that all that happened was this, you know, see these, these, these elements, right? This, this, this matter is all bound together with energy. That energy can, be, can, can become other energies, it can transform at any point. Now again, it would be wrong for me to say it was light energy that became kinetic energy. It's, it, that's not how it works. It's not the energy that binds all of this together, all of a sudden becomes heat energy. It's not one becomes another. One never becomes another. The concept of change is flawed. Things don't change in this world. You're right, Tominos, I've never changed. <laughs> Things don't change. We can't talk about change. Because to talk about change, you have to talk about two fixed points, shouldn't you? If this became that, then this was there and this is here now. Things don't change. They simply manifest. Whatever the causes, it's a, it's a brand new manifestation. Is this making sense? At least be polite and give me a nod. <laughs> Things don't change. You know, young don't grow into old. The living don't die. I know this sounds like madness. What do you mean the living don't die? Isn't that what Buddhist philosophy is all about? We all die. We all grow old. And we all age. Isn't that what the Bodhisattva, the prince, saw as he traveled across the land? You know, people age, people die. You know, he saw the hermit, he saw the old man, he saw the sick man, he saw the dead man. What are you talking about? Isn't this what the Buddha went to look for answers for? These problems had to be solved. See, the problem with that thinking is, what you think is, yes, the, the prince, he, when he went with his charioteer, he saw sick people, and then he realized the reason I'm attached is the reason I, I suffer when people around me, they fall sick. When loved ones fall sick, I, 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 I suffer because of my attachment. So let the sick ones be sick, I just sever myself the attachment. If I just get rid of the attachment, the sick ones can still be sick, but I don't feel that bond with them. Wrong. That's not what the Buddha did. The Buddha realized that there are no sick people. What the Buddha realized was there are simply manifestations. It's not this. Nothing exists. It's not that. Please don't get that into your heads. It's not that nothing exists. Here's what exists. So you can't say it's an existence. Because when you talk about existence, you feel like it's an entity. Because entities exist. Existence is a, is a characteristic of entities. Yeah, Existence is a characteristic of entities. Manifestations are not characteristics of entities. Manifestations is all there is. Manifestations. Don't ask me manifestations are a characteristic of what, Saminans. Because again, you're asking the wrong question. You're asking for a what. You want me to fix something for you and then talk about it. If you ask me, what is blue? You want me to say the duster is blue? You want me to say that, don't you? I can't, because it's not the duster that is blue. There is blueness. There is blue. It's not that the duster is blue, but there is blue. This configuration we call a duster. This is just matter, an energy. This arrangement in the, in the two-dimensional world, in, the, in, a, in a dimensional world, we refer to this as a duster because if we didn't, then we couldn't, we couldn't exist. 
you know because not everyone has seen the dhamma through you know through not everyone has seen the dhamma even if everyone had seen the dhamma let's say we are all arahants if you still want a glass of water you can't say bring me that manifestation please what manifestation because they're all manifestations can you get some manifestation into the manifestation please <laughs> what like that you'd have to say can you get me some water to the glass please yeah, i mean we we couldn't exist like that could we we can't we can't we, we couldn't talk and communicate with each other so we need words but 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 understand that that is what words are they're simply labels for manifestations they're not labels for entities what we can't get into our heads is we believe that words are labels for things mother is a label for the person who gave birth to me that's how you feel that's wrong it's just a mo- mother is a label for a manifestation manifestations can have words okay they can have labels just so we can refer to them just so we can talk about them that is why we need it you know what is this a triangle like just let I me mean, just think about it tell me when you see a triangle okay no no wait what do you see hmm three lines you don't see anything else you show sure? you show sure you don't see anything else hmm okay what do you see what do you see you don't see anything else you show sure? okay what do you see there's a gap between the two just in case you can't see from the back okay just saying just saying what do you see still three lines after all the all those things you still just see three lines i'm i'm making such an effort here please come on <laughs> play along <laughs> what do you see still just three lines huh okay this is what was before all i did was that okay now what do you see so three lines hmm? okay now what do you see so three lines now what do you see hmm still three lines just three lines Now what do you see? Hmm? Still three lines. Oh, okay. Now what do you see? Ah, where did that come from? Why do you no longer see the three lines? Why do you see a triangle? I didn't bring a triangle. Where did the triangle come from? there's just three lines but you see a triangle in fact you don't see a triangle you perceive a triangle because now this belongs to this it's a unit now like you are a family hmm? we are family hmm? so now you're a family <laughs> you're no longer individual 
things. First, there was man, there was woman, right? I'm talking about how your family happened, right? They were like this. This man looked this way, the woman looked that way. He's still looking there, she's still looking this way. He's still looking there, she's still looking this way. Oh, hello, hello. She's still looking there, he's still looking this way. Hi again, hi again. She's still looking there, she's still, they're still, still separate people. Shall we be friends? Oh yeah, sure. Hmm? Now what do you see? Friends. Now he's still looking there, she's still looking here. Shall we be more than friends? Oh yeah, sure, let's be more than friends. Hmm? Now they're a couple. They're in a relationship. Hmm? He's still, she's still looking here, he's still looking here. Just two individuals. And then say, shall we be more than friends? Shall we be more than a couple? Shall we be husband and wife? Yeah, why not? This is how you see you and your husband. Till death do us part. I mean, till death do yourselves a favor. <laughs> do yourself a favor and begin to realize that all this was just this. You're still this and this. That is why we always say you came along, you're going to go alone. But in your minds, you believe we are now family. And I've got all my sisters with me. That's what you feel. It's simply a perception. Now, because you know, Don't you feel that you're a family man now? Just think about it. I'm a family man. You know, I've got my wife, I've got my children, I've got people to look after me, I've got, I've got, I've got people for me, you know. I'm a people person. I've got my family with me, I, I, have not, I have nothing to worry about. I'm not lonely, I'm not lonely. I'm not lonely. Why? Because I've got my family with me. I've got my friends, I've got my, my, my children, my daughter, my, 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 my son, my wife, and the other wife, and you know, we're all a lovely family. What, what changed? Physically, what changed? Nothing changed. Nothing changed. They're just the individual parts. But what do you see? You see a whole that is greater than the sum of its parts. These are the parts. You see a whole that is greater than the sum of its parts. You think now these two are one. Don't you, you know, for those of you who've been in this kind of relationship, right, whether girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, wife, you know, when the two of you came together, did you not feel that, you know, you were, you were one? Uh, wasn't there, was there never a point in your life where you felt that, you know, you and I, you know, it's not like we are two different people anymore, right? We are, we are one. Been there, done that. I know, I know what that feels like. But I sold that cow and someone bought it apparently. <laughs> I no, by cow I didn't mean I oh god I'm digging myself <laughs> deep hole here I didn't mean her I mean my foolishness <laughs> that's, that's not what I meant I still respect that lady okay that's not what I meant what I meant is I, I sold that foolishness I, I, I moved on and as, she, as did she she moved on. She realized, you know, this, although the two of us, we lived together, right? The truth was, it was just a, a perception that we, have in, we had in our minds that we are, we, are, we are husband and wife, we are spouses. 
but you feel that way. And when you feel that way, you feel like, you know, someone's always there for you. How wrong? There's no one there for you. When, you know what the, the Buddha says? When even you are not there for yourself, how can anyone else be there for you? Attahi attano nato, kohinato parosia. When even you are not there for yourself, where is you for yourself? Hmm? This sense that you feel that you exist, even when that is also not there, how can someone else be there for you? That's why he is called the Natyan Mahansa. No Nato. You know, when you, even you are not there for your refuge. Because, you know, when the mind goes into vexation, ladies and gentlemen, it's looking for, it's looking for refuge, right? When the mind needs to identify a separation, an identity, it feels that, oh, it's fine, I'm here. I'm here. Even if nothing else is here, I'm here. So I feel separate. I'm good. Whew, thank God for that. That's how the mind feels. But what the Buddha says is, no, no, don't be fooled. That is not you. That is not you. You want to feel separate and you feel you are separate? No, no. You are not separate. You are not an identity. What you just sensed was, a, was an illusion. Even you are not there for yourself. How can your mother be there for you? What nonsense? Kohinato parosia. How can someone else, para is another, how can someone else be of refuge to you? See, he's talking about this. That's why I say, seek refuge in the Dhamma. Seek refuge in the Dhamma. Don't seek refuge in your mother. Don't seek refuge in your, in your husband or your wife. Children, don't seek refuge in your parents. Conventionally, yes, they'll be there to safeguard you, protect you, look after you, all that. But, you know, at the end of the day, when all is said and done, the mind is alone. If the mind has understood the Dhamma, the mind is free. If the mind has not understood the Dhamma, the mind suffers. Why does the mind suffer? The mind is vexing for an identity. The mind is vexing to, to experience a separation. And when it goes into this deep state of this vexation, insanity happens. And when insanity takes over, you feel that you exist. So people, people, people begin to take refuge in that. Oh, oh it's fine, it's fine. I, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. Oh, I thought I was alone. I thought there was no one, but I'm here. That's fine then. And what does the Buddha say? No, 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 no. That's not you. That's not you. Not even you are there for your refuge. That's why Nati me saranangya, Dhammu me saranangvara. Don't seek refuge in another, because there are no others. <laughs> there are no others. There is no another to take refuge in. It is just the mind. You know, you are so 
alone. You don't have to go looking for meditation in solitude. You are always in solitude. <laughs> You're all by yourselves. You don't need to go, you don't need to take some time out. You know, I'm just going to take some time out. It's just too busy, you know, family too busy, work too busy. I just want to, I just want time for myself. Hmm? You feel that way from time to time. I just want to get myself my personal space, you know, just be away from other things and other people. Just, you know, just be by myself for a while. You are always by yourself. There's no one there for you. That's why the Dhamma is the only refuge, ladies and gentlemen. That's why, you know, we take all this effort to try and get this point across to you. If you take refuge in the Dhamma, if you practice in the Dhamma, then you will, you will be able to stand without, without this need to have someone, even yourself, to keep you sane. You know, what we are trying to do is not to make you not to make you independent and reliant of others. What we're actually trying to make you is independent of yourself. We're trying to help you become independent of yourself. Non-reliant on yourself. Don't rely on yourself. Don't, don't be dependent on yourself. If you are dependent on yourself, you're in for a, you're in for a hard time. Oh. Back to the triangle. Where's the triangle? At which point did the three lines stop being three lines and become a triangle? <clears throat> it never did. The truth is it never did. This guy, imagine he was looking this way. Let's just imagine each of these, each of these lines they could see, okay? <clears throat> Imagine this, they, they could see. Imagine they could see. So each of these lines could see. Would they know when the triangle is complete? Hmm? Would they? They wouldn't. Because they are just a line, a straight line. These straight lines only become a triangle in your perceived world. They were always single straight lines and they always will be single straight lines. This line is not part of this triangle and neither is this, neither is this. A, B and C. These three lines are not the lines that belong to a triangle. A, B, C is not a triangle. A is a straight line, so is B and so is C. But in your mind, when I moved them close enough and they came into contact with each other, now you said that's a triangle. I'm not just talking about the name that mathematicians have given this or trigonometrists have given this. I'm not just talking about that. What I'm talking about is you stop seeing the line. You see a triangle, don't you? You actually perceive a triangle, don't you? And then you talk about the qualities of a triangle. As soon as, you know, if this line exists here, talk to me about the angles. What are these angles? You have, no, you, have, you have no concept of an angle. But the moment I bring this line close to the next, to the next line, now you're talking about an angle. This line in relation to that line. And this line in relation to this line. Now you're talking about angles. 
This con the, so these are characteristics of a triangle. Angles are not characteristics of a straight line, but all there is are straight lines. But the moment they come together, now you start talking about characteristics and qualities that you never spoke of earlier, because now in your mind there is a new entity. Now there is a new entity. So what is anicca then? If you can see physically the triangle, so we can all call it a triangle, but in your mind's eye through insight, through mindful awareness, if you can perceive that all there is are three lines together, okay? Or if you can see that all there is are three lines together, now you are seeing the world through the lens of anicca. Meaning, there is, <laughs> because you see, <laughs> folks, if, the, if this is a triangle, right, I've just broken the triangle, haven't I? I, di I didn't have to do all that. I can just do this. If I just, if I just turn this, this line just, just ever so slightly, now I've broken the triangle. See, now the triangle is dead. What died? The triangle died. That's why for death to happen, fixed things should have happened. It is always fixed things, entities that go through these transformations we talk about, like disease and old age and death. If there were only the three lines, what's still there? If all there were the three lines, okay? If all there is are the three lines, when I draw this, now what's there? Now what's there? Is the question not clear to you? If you see a triangle here, now this is a complete triangle. <coughs> Excuse me, this is a complete triangle and now there's a, what used to be a triangle, let's call it a broken triangle, a dead triangle, okay? If all you perceived are the three lines, now what's there? See the three lines. See, now you no longer talk about death. Do you see the, the, the idea I'm, I'm really trying to get across to you here? Now you're not talking about death. What about when it starts to shake? It gets a bit shaky. What's there now? If you see the triangle, now it's, a, it's an aging triangle. You know, it might fall off. You know, one of, these, one of these sides will fall off at some point. So, you know, let's tie, tie them together just to make sure that it's not going to collapse. That's what you do when you grow old. You tie your bits together so, you don't, so they don't fall off. You plug yourself to a machine so it doesn't stop working. Because you want to keep that configuration in that way. That arrangement has to be in that way. You know, this is why when, you know, when, when things start to break, right, the, the concept of breaking is in your mind because they're fixed. How can something break if it's not a unit? See, this is what you might call a chain. Okay, this is a chain. If you see this as a chain and not just as two fingers that are, that, you know, two fingers uh, together, if you don't see it as just two of these, but if you see it as a chain, what just happened? The chain broke. But if you just see this as two links, right, then nothing's happened. The chain hasn't broken. You could say, yes, the link is no longer but the chain hasn't broken. But if you see these two as a chain, now the chain is broken. But what just happened? 
the link that was before, one of the links was just fine and nothing's happened to it. The other link, yes, it might have just given way, right? This is all that happened. But if you see something beyond the two parts, if you see something greater than the parts, now you say the chain is broken. But where's the chain? The chain is only in your mind. So the concept of death, the concept of death can only happen if you see a chain. So because now you have a weak chain, see this is a weak chain, an aging chain, a really old chain, and eventually you have a broken chain. So you don't want this to happen because you know you want the chain. You want the chain. Where's the chain? The chain's not here. The chain's in your mind. You want the chain. So if you want the chain, now when old age kicks in, you begin to suffer. Why? Piyohi? Vipayogo dukko. You begin to suffer. Oh my God, you know, my, my mother, she's aging now. Oh, I feel so sad. She's aging now. She's got a cancer. See, she, she's going to die soon. See? She's weak now. What's weak? <laughs> the chain is weak. Where's the chain? There's no chain. There are just links. But in your mind, if there's a chain, it's a weak chain now. It's going to break. It's going to snap one of these days. And, oh, she died. Where's the chain? There was no chain. But in your mind, there was a chain, and now the chain is broken. Question, sir? Uh, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> hmm. You mean in day-to-day -day existence? Day-to-day -day living? Yep. Absolutely. In fact, we were great point because we were actually talking about this yesterday. I was talking about this with one of the monks who came to see me. I said, you know, every time we say that this is a duster, we are taking a step away from Nibbana. <laughs> so every time you, you talk about the entities in this world, you are taking a step away from Nibbana. When you talk about my family, you know, what was the first speech you gave? Myself. Right? The very first speech you gave, you spoke utter lies. Hello, I am so and so. I'm this many years old. I live in this place. I have a brother and two sisters. <laughs> what lies? Hmm? And, and I like this. I like that. I also have a pet at home. We call it Tommy. I have a fish. We call it Sammy. See? All of these all of these words, if you actually, if you perceive that these words which we use as labels, right, are entities that really exist in this world, every time you're talking about it, you give yourself just a tiny element of pleasure. Every time you, every time you see this as one unit, you are in pleasure. I'm talking about something really subtle now. Remember, if you, if you can from our previous conversations, the mind sees fixed entities because it goes into a state of vexation. Because there are no fixed entities to be seen. Okay? There are no fixed entities to be seen. This is all your mother ever was. But when the mind goes into this state of vexation and it really, really, really needs it, it goes into this abhisankara mode 
right, the insanity mode, and out of nowhere, it begins to see a fixed entity. At that moment, it experiences relief from vexation. The vexation of wanting to, wanting to experience a unit, an entity, an identity. So the moment it sees this object, any object, the moment it experiences any object through the five senses, <laughs> it doesn't have to be a beautiful flower. It can, it can, it can impl it's impl even be you know, the waste material from, you know, from, from, the, from a digestive system. It doesn't matter. No matter what it sees, if it sees an entity, it experiences pleasure. That's why, you know, if you went blind, if you went blind, right, or at least temporarily, and the doctor said, I can, I can do a surgery and, and fix your eyesight, but after you get your eyesight, you can only see the things that you, saw, you thought were ugly when you had your sight. Is that okay? What might you say? So before you went blind, you had beautiful things and ugly things, pretty things and ugly things, okay? Now you've gone blind. And the doctor says, I can, I can reinstate, I can give you back your sight, but once you start to see the world again, remember those ugly things you used to see? And you also saw some pretty things? From here on, anything you thought was pretty, you will no longer see. I, I, can't, I can't fix that part, unfortunately. I can only fix the part where once you get your sight back, you will only see the ugly things or the things that you thought were ugly. Is that all right? <laughs> what do you think the guy's going to say? No, thank you. I say, absolutely. Yes, please, can I have that? Because ugly and pretty is like, uh, is like dessert. <laughs> That's not the main cause. <laughs> the main cause is, are the fixed entities. If you have the main cause, you know, dessert is optional. <laughs> That's why they ask you after the meal, would you like to have some dessert, sir? Not today, thank you very much. We are, I'm, I'm all right. But you don't go into the restaurant to have the dessert. You go into the restaurant for the main course, right? So as the gentleman said, whenever we talk about fixed elements, fixed entities in this world, you know, that is a step away from Nibban. No wonder people are stuck in samsara. No wonder. Because where's the insight to see the world as it really is? You know, because you see, let's gentlemen, you know, anytime you see something as, something as an object, you know, as an entity, you either like it or you dislike it. It's, it's very hard to be neutral about anything, right? See this flower. Hmm? Don't you think it's pretty? Don't you? Come on, don't you? See, it's pretty, see? It's a pretty flower. So every time you see a flower, you either put it into the pretty box or you put it into the ugly box. But that is just the dessert. Before that happened, you saw the flower. Seeing beauty and, uh, and beast are simply bonuses to the mind. That is not the monthly salary. <laughs> the, basic, the basic salary is not that. This is just a bonus, the pretty and the ugly. The basic wage, the basic salary is seeing a flower. Because when you see a flower, now either good things will happen to it or bad things will happen to it. It'll either wither away and die, as has been asked in the question, which is not what you like, because you thought it was pretty. Or perhaps, you know, if you give it enough nourishment and maybe if you put it in some water and some flower feed, right, then it might actually bloom and blossom a bit more. 
when you bring flowers from the from the shop supermarket you put it into the into the water and add the chemical you know after a while the flower blossoms that is what you like to see and so you take pleasure you take delight in that because you see the flower but after a while what's going to happen it's going to wither so then you say see a flower is impermanent what was pretty before what was beautiful before is now ugly so let's not attach to the flower <laughs> let's not attach to the flower because the flower is impermanent the flower changes from when it was good young and bright and beautiful to now when it is withered old and dead so let's not attach to what the flower so that's like saying let's not have dessert let's just stop at main course you still eaten the poison if you see a flower you've already lost the battle you've already lost if you see a flower here you've already lost the battle that's why i said behold nibbana there is no flower here there is no flower that you see the flower that you perceive is not here what we have here is simply a manifestation <clears throat> this is not a manifestation of anything this is just a manifestation in fact you know it's just like an arrangement you can give it a name the name does not exist here that's why the buddha says sanya is like a mirage you know mirage in the desert yeah when you're out in the desert when it's a hot day it doesn't have to be the desert you know if you look you know <clears throat> down a, 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 a long road on a hot day right you see a you see you know what do you call it a that's a mirage right yes that's a mirage yes now as a scientist you might know actually what's going on because we studied that at school but before you did that you thought that was water but that is anything but water but why do animals die running to it because they don't know the science behind it they think that's water so a thirsty animal a thirsty beast will run and it will keep running just the same way when you don't see the flower here your mind goes into uh, uh, the mind is thirsty it's hungry for separation not a flower separation so when i show you this all i'm showing you is a manifestation i'm not actually showing you a flower but the mind wants to see a separate entity the mind wants to see an object so what does the mind do like a deer or like a beast who is thirsty and runs after the mirage you run after this in your mind you can't stop you can't help seeing a flower here and when you see this flower you go that's a sigh of relief but the moment you see this flower it like to be an ugly flower or a pretty flower you can't help that either you might think well if merit is also a product of ignorance why are we encouraging you to do that that's some that's terrible advice no <clears throat> it would only be terrible advice advice if you were arahants if you were an arahant then me telling you to do merits would be a terrible thing because what i'm asking you to do would be to start doing karma whatever you hear whatever you see whatever comes into contact with your senses is the product of the seeds that you sowed in the past why do you hear the dhamma today Why do you think you're listening to the dhamma today? Absolutely. These are the fruits of your labor. In other words, these are the 
fruits of the seeds that you sowed. In other words, again, these are the fruits of your merits. Your meritorious deeds have earned you the fruits that is the Dhamma. Right? So it is not I who has to take credit for what you're hearing today. You and you alone have to take credit for that. I can only be like a radio, but if you transmitted the signals, I can be the radio that can attract that and, let you li- and, and get you to hear, listen to it again. So it is your merits that have brought you the Dhamma. It is your merits that give you meals. It's your merits that give you water when you're thirsty. Because all merits does is it frees you from suffering, whether that is physical suffering or mental suffering. So what does demerit do? It brings you suffering. Demerits bring you suffering. Merits free you from suffering. That is why the word ping is, is such a fitting word for it. Means it eases. That is what it does. It eases. Merits ease. Ease what? Suffering. Either physical or mental. Psychological. So the Dhamma that you're listening today is going to free your mind from suffering. Don't you feel you at least made you know, one step forward from when you started listening to this talk? That is not my doing. That is your merit. So you have earned the merits to now reap this fruit. That is why we say carry on doing merits. Engage in more merits. Engage in more merits with Nibbana in mind. If you have to live another eon, Right? And I can be dead certain that you're not going to be attending Nibbana for the next foreseeable future. Right? Then, you know, merits done can be done in the hope that you might have something nice to eat, maybe somewhere nice to live, maybe some nice people to be with. Yeah? You could do that. But as you see Nibbana in sight, right? it's, it's a light at the end of the tunnel. As you have begun to see that, now you realize that there is such a thing called Nibbana. A state where the mind can be free of suffering. As you've seen that, I urge you to engage in merits with resolve that may, by the power of these merits, we be able to attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Having said that, I would have sa- I, I'm sure I would have said a few weeks ago not to do merits in the hope of Nibbana. What did I mean by that? Again, you know, we are jumping. You know, I, I'm... Uh, I'm saddling two horses at the same time. Here's the thing. Well, what I said the other day, because you know, otherwise you might go home and wonder, but then Swami Nansi said this, now he's saying this. Is he confused? <laughs> you might wonder. Right? <clears throat> I said the other day, yes. Remember I said someone helped me out with something and then I told him, you know, don't do merits in the hope that one day you can become an anagarik and then go on to become, you know, uh, enter monkhood and, and attain Nibbana. Because I said, I was trying to make a, get, a diff, get a different point across. What I was trying to say was, in the deed you do, see Nibban. But that comes with practice. If that practice you're still working on, then it's perfectly fine. Let's, let's work on merit so that one day we can attain Nibbana. Because if that is the case, you still haven't spotted Nibbana. That's okay. You know, we didn't all start with Nibbana, did we? We all started with no idea or inclination for Nibbana. Because we thought Nibbana was something that, you know, just think about a few years ago, you probably thought Nibbana was something I'm going to be able to do when I see the Maitri Buddha. That was how far away you had pushed away Nibbana. Today, you open your eyes and you say, ah, Nibbana. (laughs) 
See, the Dhamma has been able to bring Nibbana that was miles and miles and eons and light years away hmm, to right in front of your very eyes. The Dhamma was always there. Your understanding of the Dhamma has brought Nibbana you know, just, just right in front of you. It's just, you know, right before your eyes. It's just your understanding of Nibbana. So why engage in merits? Because it is merits that have got you this understanding. Remember, merit or demerit, okay? Karma. Collectively, it's just called karma, yeah? Karma has the, has the potential to, 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 to generate vipaka. And vipaka comes in seven forms. Either sight, sound, smell, taste, pleasurable touch, or unpleasurable touch. Oh, that's six. One more. Dhamma. Not dhamma as in the preaching. Dhamma as in thoughts that come into the mind. These seven things are the products of karma. Once you become an arahant, you will not be generating more of these. You will only be consuming what has already been generated. That is why after you have become an arahant, there is no use for you to be engaging in merits. But on the journey to becoming an arahant, merits is what will get you across. Why? Because you need the sights to help you to get to Nibbana. You need to be able to see this today. If you couldn't see what was on the board, how would you understand what I'm trying to explain to you? Sight. Because of merits. Sound. You hear what I say. If you are awake, that is. Because of merits. When you eat something, Right? You have to be able to smell it, taste it, just to make sure that it's safe for you, for safe, you know, safe for your consumption. Right? This is merits. The sense of touch helps you to get places without bumping into things. And it helps you to you know, stay alive. You know when something's hot, so you can pull your finger back, or you pull your, pull your arm back and just you know, keep yourself safe. Merits. You have a chair to sit on. You know, it's nicely air-conditioned in this room right now. So you don't, have to, you don't have to be sweltering and you don't have to be sweaty and groggy and just you know, be very uncomfortable. Merits. Because merit for the physical body can come in two ways. Pain and comfort. That is the product of your own making. But there are no such things as pleasurable sights, although there are things as pleasurable touch. But there are no such things as pleasurable sounds or pleasurable tastes. There's no such thing. But... Uh, but Pain is pain for everybody. Although you might say, aren't there some people who take pleasure in pain? Yes, there are. That pain is pain on the body, but their mind wishes to perceive it as pleasure. Some people take pleasure in pain. But that's just the mind. But the pain is still pain. I mean, if, if they didn't take pleasure in pain, why would they want the pain? It's pain then, is it not? The very fact that they can they take pleasure from it and then they seek it means there is pain in that pleasure. Sorry, I beg your pardon. There is actual as actual pain. Otherwise, they wouldn't be they wouldn't be doing things to experience that pain. So, in fact, that is pain. That is why they can actually take pleasure out of it. So that pain actually exists. And then ultimately, or finally, dhamma. Dhamma is the thoughts that come into your mind. It's when all your senses have shut down, and the mind can still think of things. You know, the fact that you can understand what I'm saying, not hearing what I'm saying, but understanding what I'm saying, 
that is the dhamma doing its part to you because this is the, you know you, you saw the puppy in here earlier right i was preaching the same sermon to you as i as i did to it how much of it do you think it understood not a bit because it heard the same voice it was the same sound right but those sounds the dog doesn't have the dhamma it doesn't have the memory it doesn't have the capacity to convert those sounds into dhamma that the mind can interpret it doesn't have that capacity it doesn't have the 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 because it has memory the dog has memory of course the dog has memory but what the dog doesn't have what an animal doesn't have is the capacity to convert written words heard sounds into speech and into words and to make sense of it that the dog is not able to do because it does not have the merit to understand the dhamma so the buddha dhamma doesn't come into its mind but it does to you because you are in a sugati world this is why we call this the blissful plane you can attain bliss not because it's comfortable to be here and we can sit under an air condition <laughs> that's not why this is called the blissful world this is called the blissful world because from here you can attain attain bliss, blissfulness you can aspire to blissfulness you can proceed to blissfulness you can carry on to nibbana this is a stepping stone to nibbana but what do most people do after they're here pare <laughs> they waste away useful life they do the same thing the dog does eat sleep drink and that so what difference is there between a human being and an animal if all they do are the same things you know an animal gets it for free the food it gets but the man he has to earn you know your dog at home you made that kennel for it you gave it shelter he didn't go to work did it <laughs> or get a mortgage no you got it and then you 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 built a house for it so the dog got it for free whereas you worked for it who's the dog now how many times has guru handro talked about some of these things who's the dog now really the dog doesn't have to cook its meals well, you cook it if you cook its meals sometimes you get pet food you go shopping for the dog or so pet food i mean pet food sometimes pet food is more expensive than human food sometimes people will buy the cheapest stuff that they can afford for themselves and the most expensive stuff for their pets they do that you know when the mind wants something it will go to any length to get what it wants sometimes you know if someone has a headache or you know they're not feeling well they might not treat it they might not go get an examination done they might not go get a checkup done but when the dog is ill if the dog doesn't eat for two days right at the pet so not the pet the vet take the pet to the vet and you know you know how cheap vets are right yeah so who gets the premium treatment in if if that was what we had to base being born in sugati is then actually they are in the sugati <laughs> and we are in the dugati <clears throat> because we have to work for our meals they don't they get it for free it's like they are in the deva worlds in the deva worlds you know you just have to wish for it and it's there what do they have to they just have to bark for it and it's there <laughs> let's go breakfast and then breakfast is there <laughs> lunch lunch is there <laughs> I want to go for a walk. I take for a walk. 
Clean my bed. And the bed is cleaned. See? When can you make such demands? Hmm? Breakfast. Get your own. <laughs> Go for a walk. Yeah, when you're out, can you do the shopping as well at the same time? <laughs> Get the groceries while you're out there. You know, that, that, you know, we should we shouldn't underestimate what 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 sugati is. That is why we we always talk about this when you when you come to the monastery, right? You have been born as human beings. Do make sure that you make use of that humanness. Most people don't make use of that humanness because most people don't know the value of humanness. They think it's there to enjoy creature comforts. They think it's just there to enjoy creature comforts. Enjoy the pleasures of life. I mean, animals do that. They enjoy the pleasures of life. It's, it would be such an insult. If God created man, right, it would be such an insult to God. Right, because... He created man in his own image. That is what the Holy Bible says. God created man in his own image. Right? Do you think all God does is just eat, sleep, drink and whatever? No, I mean God does good to mankind. He saves man. He sends his only son to save mankind. That's what God does. But if you know humans who are in his shape and in his form and he, they take his appearance and if all they do is hurt one another... And then, uh, and then you know, go and just go after their after their comforts and pleasures. And if all that's they, if, if that's all they do, then what an insult that is to God Himself. You know, you can make even God regret. So our purpose as human beings is to understand something that animals cannot. Because they just don't have the capacity to do that. We have, because we as human beings have the ability to attract the meritorious power of the good deeds that we've done in the form of Dhamma. That the animals cannot do. But the animals, being animals, can, uh, can attract the meritorious power of sounds, smells, taste, touch, and you know, all the other five senses. But what they cannot attract is the merit that they might have. I mean, they might have, they might have merits. To understand the Dhamma. But as a dog you cannot do that. Because the mind does not tune. To attracting that Dhamma. Because remember it's always the environment. right? The environment is what attracts. Because the, uh, an animal. or a, I'm just taking a dog as an example here. You know, that is a Gati. It's a temperament. It's, it's a quality. Which is part of the environment. That environment does not attract Buddha Dhamma. That is why it's called the Dugati. Not because you are born in a human world. That mind does not attract the Buddha Dhamma. What is the Buddha Dhamma again? The truth. The truth sets you free. Yeah. So, just because it was the Buddha that preached it doesn't mean that the Buddha owns it. The Buddha owns nothing. He doesn't own the Dhamma that he, that he preached. He doesn't own it. If you ask him, he'd say, no, I don't own it. This is not me saying it. He would have said it. I don't own the Dhamma. Although he would say, I'm Dharma Swami. You know, that, that, is, that, is just, that is just an expression for us to get into our minds who the Buddha was as an entity because until you become an Arahant you have to see the Buddha as a person and have devotion towards him and, and piety and respect and reverence you know for what reason? because it earns you merits 
That's why. That is why. You know, the, the Buddha speaks of how great he is, right? If you went and say, uh, asked the Buddha, Buddha, aren't you, aren't you just a good person? The Buddha would have said, that's how little you know about me. I'm the greatest man that ever lived. And then you would go, God, what a snob. <laughs> he's so bigoted. I said he was good. And now look, you know, he's, he's, he, he's speaking highly of himself. And who ever thought Buddha would do that? To speak highly, so highly of himself? No, the Buddha does that for, for a very different reason. He knows well and truly that he's just something like this. He's just a manifestation. He knows that he's not an entity. I mean, of all people, who should know that? <laughs> the Buddha should, right? But he'll tell you, the Buddha is great. The Buddha is holy. The Buddha's sila, samadhi and panya, they cannot be compared to anyone. His compassion is unparalleled. The Buddha will carry on talking about himself. All to help you rejoice in goodness. Because until you become a sotapanna at the very least, anytime you see something, an attribute, you have to you have to see it as belonging to something. If I say good, you'll ask me the question, who? If I say bad, you again you'll ask me the question, who? So if I say kind, you'll ask me the question, who? You know, in your mind, the question will come up. It's automatical. So if I don't give an answer to that question, then you cannot, you cannot really understand, you cannot really absorb and wrap your head around goodness. A mind that has seen the truth, at least a mind that has become a sotapanna, now begins to understand that itipi, sobhagava, arahang, samma, sambuddho are not actually virtues of the Buddha. They're simply virtues. They're not of someone. They're just good. And in the same way, you know, badness is badness, goodness is goodness. It doesn't belong to anybody. That's why we say there are no such thing as, things as bad people. There are no such things as good people, or there is all just good and bad. It doesn't belong to anyone. That's why we don't have friends and neither do we have enemies. Because who is an enemy? Someone who is bad. Yeah? So who's a friend then? Someone who is good. Take the someone out. Now who's a friend? Who's an enemy? If if ever you had to say who was who's the friend and who's the enemy, all you have will have to do, do is, is say. Goodness is the friend, evil is the enemy. So true. Hate the sin, but love the sinner. Hate the sin because the sin is bad. Love the sinner because it's not, it's not he who's bad. It's the evilness that is bad. And all of that you can understand once you begin to realize these concepts. So, who dies? What, is, what should you be your objective as, 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 a, as a Buddha aspirant? Is it to sever this connection between you and your mother? No. It's to realize that what we call as mother is simply a manifestation. What you call yourself is also just a manifestation. Once you realize that these two things are just manifestations, you then begin to realize this attachment is also a manifestation. All things are manifestations. Ignorance is the cause of attachment. Again, attachment is also a manifestation. But you can only attach when you see fixed entities. Like you can only embrace a fixed entity, you can only fight back 
a fixed entity. Both Raga and Dvesha are byproducts of Moha. So without Moha, there is neither Raga nor is there Dvesha. So once you understand that, you know, this, you know, that's why we say, don't let go, let letting go happen. Yeah, Guru Hamro used to say that, you know, right, you know, we go back to the very first sermons. He always used to say, don't let go anything, just let it, let, just let it be. Buddhism is not to let go. Once you understand that the mother is just a manifestation, you don't need to let go of her. Imagine if you were holding, if you thought you were holding on to something, you were grasping it as tight as you, ever, as you could, right? And someone comes and says, let go. I say, no, I need it. Because my life depends on this. This is the most precious thing. And then the person says, let go, yaar. I say, no, this is important to me. And the person says, trust me, there is nothing in there. I don't believe a word you say. I've held on to this as far as, as long as I can remember. <coughs> Excuse me. My whole life I've held on to this. In fact, all of Sansar I've held on to this. What are you saying? There's nothing I'm holding on to. No, there is nothing you're holding on to. Just have a look, will you? You say, at one point, if you trust what is being said, that's why you need a little bit of trust here. Just a little bit. And, but they'll give, you, they'll give you things to think about. You know, they'll give you positive arguments to help you begin to conceive this. They'll say, you know, has it ever tried to escape you? No. Have you ever felt uh, relaxed because of it? No, actually, I mean, you know, the more I feel like it might escape me, I'm, I'm actually clenching it as, as hard as I possibly can. Does it not hurt you to do that? Well, yes. Is it not tiring? Mm-hmm. Is it not exhausting? Talk to me about it. It's so exhausting. So why don't you just, just, just have a look? See if there's actually anything in there. All this time you have kept your, your fist clenched. But, you know, just because you trust what the other person is saying and your merit convinces you to do so, right? that's, 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 the, that's the changeover point. Your merit convinces you to take a leap of faith. Then you just have a quick look. Huh? There's nothing in here. But now you've, you've been like this for as long as you can remember. It's difficult to let go all of a sudden. But now you realize there is nothing there inside. Once you realize there's nothing there to hold on to, should you be begged to let go? Now you realize it is my foolishness because of which I'm clenching my fist like this. Now you want nothing more than to let go. In fact, there's nothing to let go. All you have to do is release your, release your, uh, your, your, your fist. It's just, you just have to release. That's it. And the more you release, what do you realize? There was nothing you were holding on to. The more you release, the more you realize there was nothing you were holding on to. But that first glimpse, you know, that's a, that's a groundbreaking moment. When you realize, I'm holding on to nothing here. I'm not holding on to anything here. This is just my foolishness. This is just an illusion. That is the moment you step out of delusion. That is the moment ignorance is replaced by wisdom for one moment. And it happens in the, in the presence of a noble one. Because their explanation, their, 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 you know, their, their spirit and all that helps. And, and your merit. It helps you to understand that concept for the first time. This is the moment you are awakened from a sleep, from your slumber of 
you know, all of sansar, for one moment, you realize, huh, so true. There's nothing. I'm not holding on to anything. So why am I like this? But you try to, you know, it's like an old, you know, in your old age, if, you know, if, if they've all fastened, it's very difficult to start moving them again, right? In the same way, uh, your, your fingers have now fastened. It's almost like they're cemented. But you have to slowly work on it and, and release. But it's only when you've completely gone like this, now they're back into its natural state. And now there's no more suffering. Until then, you know, these joints, you'll hear, you'll, you, they'll start to crack. Right? It'll start to hurt. The tension in your muscles are going to hurt you, as it always has. But the more you release, the more you will feel that freedom. Until one day you can completely let go. What, would, what did you let go? You know, you didn't let go of anything. What you let go was the grasp. That is what you let go. Not anything. <laughs> you just let go of the grasp. That is what you let go. Grasping of what? Nothing. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? You're not letting go, letting go of anything. You're just letting go of your grasp of what you thought was there. But ultimately there's nothing there. That's why there is nothing more foolish. There's nothing more absurd. There is nothing more stupid than to cling on to something that doesn't exist. Thank the Buddha. Thank the Dhamma. Thank the Sangha. That is why we take refuge in the Noble Triple Gem who help us understand this and help us and guide us and walk the path to come to this realization. This is the truth that sets you free. So that is why we need merit. It is merit that helps you make that jump of faith, that leap of faith the first time, and then it is merit that's going to continue to, you know, to, 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 to release your fingers. It is merit that's going to help you do that. Because remember, it's not you who attains Nibbana. It is not you who sees the light. It is not you who becomes a Sotapanna. It is not you who sees the truth. It is not you who lets go. Because if there was a you who lets go, then there has to be something that you are clinging on to as well. It's only because you felt that you had, if you feel you have, you have to attain Nibbana, you will never attain Nibbana. Because if you feel you have to attain Nibbana, then there is also something you are holding on to. The moment you realize it's not me who's attaining Nibbana, it's the same moment you realize there is nothing I'm holding on to. They both happen at the same time. That is Nibbana. Get it? Good. Thank you for coming. <laughs> okay, it's time. Let's do the merit transfer and bring today's sermon to a close. Let us all take a moment then to transfer the merits that we have all acquired by making offerings to the infinite virtues of the Noble Triple Gem, listening to the Dhamma and engaging in various meritorious deeds today. First and foremost, let us remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in receipt of the Lord Buddha's teaching and with immense gratitude towards the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasakas and upasikas, who since time immemorial have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha and passed it down through the generations of the noble lineage in the form of the Tripitaka, which is thankfully available to us today to study, understand, and comprehend the Dhamma. Let us also take a moment to transfer the we have all acquired to all members of the Mahasangha present throughout the world, including the chief prelates of all of the chapters who have dedicated their lives to the noble path 
and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us also remind ourselves that amongst them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries who have always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine. Let us also take a moment to transfer these mails to my teacher, Guru Swami Nuhanse, as well as all the monks resident at the monastery and the Anagarika and Anagarika communities attached to the monastery. Let us take a moment to transfer these mails and express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be that by translating these sermons, sharing them out with others, or inviting others to join them, and may, by the power of these merits, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer the merits we have acquired to our devotees and friends of the monastery, who, for the sake of merits, to help them attain this bliss of Nibbana, continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes everyone from those of you who have contributed to the construction of the monastery to those who provide the Mahasangha with shelter, arms, robes and medicines, as well as those who pass down their know-how and continue to extend their well-wishes. May by the power of these merits they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us take a moment to transfer these merits to our mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews and nieces, our friends, our elders and acquaintances, our employers and employees, and to all those who have helped us, supported us and assisted us in any way, shape or form. And by the power of these merits, may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May by the power of these merits, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer, to transfer these merits to the devas and brahmas, spirits and demons, primarily the Sakadeva, as well as all the numerous gods and deities who are committed to protect and fulfill the Sambhata Sasana. Let us transfer merits to our guardian deities who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. And may by the power of these merits they prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to those who have passed away in our name, our loved ones, our ancestors, and those who have predeceased us. To all those who have been friends and families to us in this infinitely long journey of Sansara and those who have been to our help, assistance and support as and when available and possible to them, may they all rejoice in the merits that we have all acquired today. Let us also transfer these merits to the members of the armed forces as well as the police force who sacrifice their lives to protect the peace and harmony of our nation. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to those who might have lost their lives in the wars, be their friend or foe. And may they all rejoice in these merits. Let us also transfer these merits to those who might have lost their lives in natural calamities such as the tsunamis and earthquakes, landslides, pandemics, forest fires, blizzards, and so on. And by the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, they redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And finally, may by the power and blessings of all the merits we have acquired throughout the day, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of arahants on this blessed land. And finally, by the power of all the maids we have acquired, may you and I and everyone who's helped make this program a success become an arahat nuhanse or an arahateran nuhanse in this very life itself and in the era of the Gautama Supreme Buddha himself. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. May the blessings of the noble triple gem be with you all. And the members of the Mahasangha will now transfer their blessings to you. Raga Gindva Desha Gindva
Anant Mahaguna Belen, Silo Loka Silo Satyoma, Nibana Paramasukan Sukitaravit, Sadhu Sadhu Sadhu.